This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Kalani Pickhart, author of the novel, I Will Die in a Foreign Land. I mean, we're living in a time right now that, you know, discourse is a thing. Sometimes it's very one-sided. It's very often not actually discourse. It ends up being um, sort of like a mob mentality on, on either side. We'll be back with Kalani Pickhart after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. 
And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Kalani Pickhart, author of the novel I Will Die in a Foreign Land. Pickhart earned her MFA in creative writing from Arizona State University and is the recipient of research fellowships from the Virginia G. Piper Center and the U.S. Department of State Bureau of Intelligence for Eastern European and Eurasian Studies. I Will Die in a Foreign Land takes place in 2013 and 2014 in Ukraine during the protests in Kiev against then-President Yanukovych's failure to sign a referendum with the European Union, opting instead to forge a closer alliance with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The story centers around four different characters who have some relationship to the protests, which started peaceful and turned violent. The four characters whose lives are changed forever over the winter of 2014 include Katja, an American doctor who was born in Ukraine, Misha, an engineer who grew up near Chernobyl, Slava, a young activist, and Alexander, a former KGB agent who joins the protests at Independence Square. We began our discussion with Kalani Pickhart sharing that she had no background in Russian or Ukrainian history. I don't, actually. Um... When I had the idea for this book, I'd seen a documentary called Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Democracy. That's actually on Netflix. And I had just started my MFA program and we were in a novel writing workshop. And there was something about the story that, you know, really moved me. Just all of these young people heading to Maidan to protest their government. And um, the way the government responded was horrific to me. And I mean, as far as like family history goes, I, I do have European roots. So my dad was born in um, Vienna, Austria, and he lived there until he was about 12. And his mother, my Oma, her family were originally from Serbia. So we have some Slavic roots um, that go back a few generations to a little Serbian village, um, Cherevinka. So I've been interested in Slavic history, but in terms of prior knowledge before beginning this book, um, I, I had very little and it was a really intense research 
project for me as well, because it was really important for me to try and get as much right as I could, not only in terms of timeline and fact checking and that sort of thing, but also just like the emotional movement of the book for um, Ukrainians and even some Russians in, in writing it. So it was really important to me to try and get into the world. And I made some trips to Kiev and I also went to Prague um, on fellowships to do research for this. And I took a very intense uh, Ukrainian language class before I went to um, Ukraine. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit rusty, <laughs> um, but I, you know, once I, I felt as I was getting into the language and especially when I went to Kiev and I, and I was there, I, I felt so much more connected to place and people. So for people who aren't as familiar with this struggle in the mid-teens and your experience watching that documentary, was there a moment watching the documentary where it was like, like in poetry, there's a volta where Mm. things turn. Was there a turn Mm. for you where you're just like, I'm going down this path and I can't go back. And can you share Mm -hmm. either what that was and then a generalization of what you've learned about this time? So yes, there was absolutely a moment um, that I knew (laughs) I was going to be working on this. In the documentary, there's a moment um, where the church bells at um, St. Michael's Gold Dome Monastery um, ring for all of the bells ring for the first time um, in 800 years, um, the last time being um, when the Mongols invaded um, Kiev. And The thing that moved me about that the most was that, um, you know, 800 years ago in, you know, 1240, Kiev was under attack by this outside force. And in 2013, 2014, Ukrainians were under attack from their own government. And um, the shock of that is um, what what struck me. And that was certainly the moment that really, um, that really pushed me and moved me to keep going on this, this project, was to think about the historical significance of that and um, how that particular church um, had functioned as a refuge for people against the government. That was really especially moving for me. Um, and yeah, that's, that's mostly where I knew. I'm wondering if you could read the prologue. Prologue. Enter Kobzari singing. Where does it begin? Ah, it depends on who you ask. It could begin with Scythians and Simeons, Slavs and the Rus, Queen Olha, Vladimir the Great, Yaroslav the Wise. It could begin with Ki, Ilya Muromets, the Cossacks, the UNR, the UPA. One thing is certain, it doesn't just begin here, my friend. 
It doesn't begin or end with Stalin. It doesn't begin or end with Yanukovych or Poroshenko or Zelensky. It doesn't begin or end with Putin. The war has always been quiet, like a pulse. It can be forgotten. Unnoticed, like a pulse, we can feel it as long as we're still here. Lean your ear into the chest of a corpse and you'll hear it, emptiness like an echo. Have you ever listened to your wristwatch when it stopped ticking? The sound of it, that aching hollowness, like a dry fountain cracking in the sun. We've known thirst. We've known hunger here. Ah, my friend, you ask us where to begin and how can we? How many times have you carried your dead through your streets? We sing the history of Kiev. Come and you will see. What were you setting up with the prologue? And did this come as the first thing you wrote? Oh, no. This was um, either second or third draft. And it was interesting because I didn't know where I was going to put it. But I needed a place to tell more of the history and to say that this is a long <laughs> this is a long journey. In the shape that it is now, it looks less like poetry, but initially was written in verse. And I mean, there are times when I write this book and I'm, I'm sure that other writers can relate to this, but there comes a point when you're writing that you don't even recognize it as your own. And this is one of those sections where I read it and I know I wrote it. <laughs> it's here in this book. It's printed here. But there's something otherworldly about it where there's something bigger than me that was moving this story along. And I can't tell you where the idea or the inception comes from because because some of so so much of this book I think in these moments with the prologue some of Alexander Ivanovich's recollections and theorizing on the way of the universe were completely beyond me the history aspect of this I had written this much later um, than the first draft and I know this <laughs> because of the the extensive history that is sort of recounted here and all of the players that made an impact on that history. I read this really amazing history book on Ukraine that I found in Prague. It outlined the entire, from the very beginning of time <laughs> um, to now, and I believe it ends similarly to where my book ends during the the war there's something about it that i i i both feel especially connected to it and moved by it and at the same time this is one of those instances of the book where i feel like it, it's just that it's it's as if like this this spirit this voice of ukraine this kobzari um was sort of just speaking through that needed to be told what is kobzari the kobzari were essentially bards and would often sing stories and the history of certain battles and anthems for Ukraine, songs for Ukraine. And this group was nearly entirely eliminated in the Stalin era during the Russification of Ukraine and 
in my experience, you know, that's the voice that I was moved by. These people that have been, they've been attacked and they've been murdered to the point of man-made genocide by Stalin. And yet the spirit and the fighting nature and the pride in their culture and their land and um, their willingness to survive was just something that spoke to me. And as a writer, you know, putting together this, this book, I had in my mind the oral history of Ukraine here. And I read and listened to many folk songs and the title of the book comes from a folk song. Um, and yeah, the, the oral history, the oral um, poetry was incredibly important to the book. And that's how the Kobzari sort of entered the picture. The heartbeat of the book is really these four characters, mm-hmm. Katja, Alexander, Misha, and Slava. So let's talk about each one a little bit. So Katja is, she was born there. She was adopted, grew up in Boston as a doctor in Boston, had just lost her son, Isaac, um, which caused a rift with her husband, Ezra. And she is a doctor, so she goes to volunteer, I think both as a way to escape and also maybe as a journey back to where she came from. I mean, she's not specifically looking for her mother or anything else, but I think she wanted right. to connect back to that culture. Um, Katya was, when I was first drafting this, Katya was my rock. I had two characters. I had Alexander and I had Katya. And because I'm an American writer, I needed <laughs> some way to enter the story Um, as an American, as an outsider, somebody who cared and felt connected to things. And in Katja's case, it's more real. Her her heritage is is Ukrainian. But uh, Katja was really the way that I could be an outsider in an environment that I was completely unfamiliar with. And her story of loss didn't come to me quickly. It took some time working through her. Katja's relationship with Ezra and the loss that she encounters, I think that with her, it, it was just that she needed, she needed to go. Um, and I think that you're right in saying that, um, you know, in some ways it was her going to avoid um, some of the issues that she she was facing um, this dissolution of her marriage, still grappling with the loss of her son, but then also having the opportunity to go someplace where her adoptive parents is where they're from. So it was a significant opportunity for her to reconnect to herself. And, you know, she has a reflection um, wondering where her birth mother is, if she's still there, what it would be like to meet her. And yet, it's still very much a story about Katja connecting also to her adoptive mother and what it meant for Katja herself to be a mother, trying to be both a daughter and a mother 
and then a not mother and how that changes her identity. Um, she's truly somebody who I think is, is searching though. She's a very grounded and got her emotional life together. She's got, she's got things down. She's more of a list keeper. You can, you can tell, and she's very practical and present in her work with the body and healing, but she's also when she's alone and when she's in Ukraine, she's forced to, in her aloneness and in her isolation, be confronted with the love that she lost with her husband and the helplessness of being a doctor, but losing a child to uh, a heart defect. So her struggle is always going to be grounded in the body and her resistance to indulging into her emotional life and her emotional upheaval is something that becomes very real for her when she's out of her element. You mentioned Alexander and he is older. He mm-hmm. served in the KGB and was um, went to, to Czechoslovakia at the time, Czechoslovakia, to spy and had a lot of loss in his life. Um, mm-hmm lost a child, lost a wife, lost another woman he was with, lost a daughter. Um, Not that she died, but that he didn't know where she went. Can you talk a little bit about his journey? Alexander, as a person, you know, he grew up in the family where his father was a military man and respected in um, the Communist Party. And, um, you know, he grew up and he wanted to be a good, a good Soviet. And with him and his story of his teacher coming into his life, his piano teacher, and encouraging this worldly perspective, um, ultimately ended up influencing Alexander more than he initially realized. And I think that that's why his piano teacher sort of bubbles up in his story as he's, you know, saying these, these, recounting these stories um, through an audio cassette. And as he's sort of going through this um, process of telling the story of his life, I think that um, it becomes more real for him, the um, way that women that he's loved have influenced him, his sister and his wife. And as he's o- much older now and can can look back and deal with the loss of his child, Zoya, the, the first daughter that he had, and deal with his, his wife's suicide, I, I think that he ends up just realizing how his expectations of the world were completely upended and that how different it is to be a living being in the world and to fall in love and to lose so much. At what point do you stop believing in your childhood ideals and um, 
become become an adult. As an old man, he's looking back and seeing both himself as a child and wanting to still believe in that Soviet past and the work that he was doing. But he's also grappling with the fact that the women in his life, in some ways, completely upended any expectations that he had for the world. And the world that he had been picturing was um, a very masculine, militaristic world. And um, as soon as he starts to see that there's more complexity there, it's, all, it's often associated with um, his sister and then later the loss of his his daughter um the you know she disappears and um the unknown of that and the the true loss of of never knowing her if he had any perception of having any control um when he rode in on the tanks in prague as a young soldier it has been completely broken down year after year after year he would go to Maidan and play the piano while people mm-hmm. were resisting. It was kind of this beautiful kind of final act for his life and maybe mm-hmm. an act of redemption. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's getting these flashbacks of being in in Prague on a tank and then now he's he's playing the piano in in the streets of Kiev. Um, instead of being the oppressor, he's still, he's an outsider, but he's he sees his role as something that can be more uplifting. And yeah, I do agree. It's a story of redemption. It's pretty powerful in that sense. And um, I'll be honest that I did not um, initially have Alexander be the pianist at Maidan. This didn't exist in the draft before um, the galley. I mean, um, it was my work with um, my conversations with $2 Radio in opportunities for revision and reworking it. And um, there was a pianist at Maidan that was briefly mentioned at one point in the book. But, you know, my editor was able to see like, well, what if this is Alexander? And what if this is actually, what if he is actually the one playing? And it was sort of like one of those incredible like light bulb moments and I was so grateful to have Eric read this book and be <laughs> um sort of brave enough I mean it's such it was such a it doesn't seem like it but it was such a, a big revision at the time um an undertaking and there's certain parts of the book that are just very new um in his story in order to sort of contextualize him um, at, at Maidan. And that first section, the captain, you know, didn't exist before the galley. So um, it ended up being a, a logical move for him. And I think it does truly illustrate um, an arc for him from being this outside oppressor to then being an outside supporter of the people in the country that he's living in. And two dollar radio is is the publisher. Yes, yeah, two dollar radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about them. Um, but I want to finish with the the last two characters, which are yeah, um, Slava and Misha. So Slava <laughs> is fighting for the Ukraines for their independence for their democratic cause. And mm-hmm. um, she had a really tough life. Her mom left her, sold her into prostitution, mm-hmm. and. Um, that fate was not uncommon for 
some young girls at that time. Mm-hmm. So talk about, if you will, Slava. Slava was my problem child <laughs> of the book um, uh, in the sense that she was definitely the character that um, challenged me the most. Um, her story changed so much. I knew that she had some horrible past, um, but I also knew that she was a longtime citizen of Ukraine. And I had the most difficult time trying to decide, like, does Slava stay in Ukraine? She ultimately ends up leaving and she's she ends up in the United States towards the end of the book, but there is a sense that she is going back um, and there is like confirmation that she is going back to Ukraine. But I I truly did not know what exactly Slava's story was going to be. I knew that she had sort of unconventional views on love and relationships and that she was this just a complete independent soul and um, sort of went by the beat of her own drum and had gone through unspeakable difficulties and now chose to fall deeply in love um, over and over again and have uh, many partners and, and that sort of thing. The story of Slava's mother is probably one of the more personal stories in this book and only in the sense that I relate to her much more than I do perhaps Katya with the mother figure as being a more complex and not always nurturing individual and so for her there there was a story the the story that um Dasha ultimately there's only a few moments in the in the book where we have um, Dasha's perspective who is um, Slava's partner for a good a good portion of the book and Dasha has this instance when she's a, a young girl that a neighborhood girl goes missing and the sad reality in Ukraine and many of the Eastern European countries that um, are still recovering from the Soviet Union, there's a lot of um, sex trafficking, anti-LGBTQ laws in Russia and other countries, and Ukraine is working hard to, to get away from that. And I believe it was 2018 they had their first Pride Parade in the streets of Kiev, which was a huge deal. But for the most part, being gay in Ukraine and in, definitely in Russia um, is, a, is a terrifying thing. Um, people disappear. They're beaten on the streets. They're arrested. It's terrifying and mortifying to know that that's, that's how people are treated. And so I knew that part of Slava's identity was to be fluid and she's aware of the fact that she is very dangerous 
to the government in the sense of her protests through the group Femin, which was an organization that women would, I, it's based in France now, but um, originally started in Ukraine where women, and you might see pictures of it online, but the women would wear these floral crowns and bare chested or fully naked and have anti-government posters and um, paintings all over their body and go out to the streets and ultimately get arrested. So Slav is a part of this group. She's um, bisexual and um, she falls in love with a journalist, a woman journalist. And um, journalism was also a very dangerous occupation in many countries. And during this conflict and the protests, journalists were disappearing, being beaten, um, were never found. And if they were found, they were often not alive. So Slava is someone who has all of the workings for being an enemy of the state. Uh, the reason why she was so difficult for me was that she's not an especially emotional character in the sense that um, I don't believe that there's a lot of interiority for her. And so I was, had a hard time trying to figure out what her actual story was. So I knew these things about her as a person. But for me, I was having a hard time trying to access her. And I, you know, every time I'd go down to write, I'd be like, okay, Salava, like, tell me, tell me who you are, you know, you know, when the story of her childhood trauma and the relationship with her father sort of also emerged in her history in Odessa, that really like unlocked some context for her. And her story does contrast Katja's in this sort of like matronly or nurturing sort of mother figure that wants to be better. And Slava, on the other hand, um, is this incredibly feminist woman and yet has a fraught and dangerous relationship with her mother. I think that she, you know, distrusted her father in many ways too she had to grow, I think. And I think that so much of her strength and her um, personality and her avoidance, I think, of her past um, is because of, of her mother. She's, I think, made a stronger woman and a more accepting woman of others and um, is constantly being uh, challenged by people and um, but she's she's she was my little my little rebel, and um, I'm I'm pleased with how her story ended up showing up on the page because this hers was definitely the most difficult to write um, in the sense that she was the hardest for me to to access, and I wanted to I wanted to tell her story. Um, it was just incredibly hard to sort of get inside of her mind and understand why was she protesting? Why was she, why was she fighting so hard? And it, it's because of her mother and the way that she'd been treated and the way that she saw other women being treated that caused her to be the woman that she is. And then there's Misha and Misha grew up in Chernobyl and was there 
His father was working at the plant when the accident happened. He is also um, fighting for the Ukrainian cause. He also has lost his wife and has had, you know, so much loss and pain in his life. And he is immediately we see his connection with all the other characters. He meets Katja at the hospital, Alexander's at the hospital, and he's friends with Slava. Yeah, Misha is my, he's another rock in the book for me. Um, His story came to me quite easily. Um, And, you know, he has a lot of um, emotional things that he's working through as well. But as a Ukrainian citizen and also somebody who is not, I I don't feel that he's especially political in any way, or he saw himself as that, but there's something that gets him to Maidan. And um, in some ways that was probably Slava because she, her persistence in going out um, there was uh, something that, you know, concerned him. And ultimately, though, he he's uh, a participant and um, has engineering experience and um, is able to help with barricades and um, the usual sort of um, maintenance of Maidan. And he has this sort of steadying presence. And I didn't initially set out for him to be the the thread for all three to connect all of them but it ultimately en- ends up making sense i mean slava and katya only interact very briefly and are of course like connected through misha um but they're two completely um different women um and I think that they have respect for one another and are, you know, both care about Misha very deeply. And, and that's something that bound them, but they, they, they were too, too different. Their lives are too different. The places that they are in their lives are just too different. And even though they're in the middle of this conflict, there was not a way for them to, to truly connect outside of Misha. I think that Misha also with Alexander, you know, having seen and been, a participant at Maidan for so long, he recognized him and appreciated him and was able to be a friend to him. But his mother is also a, a very strong figure in his life. He often talks about in his um, memories, his father, who he wishes that he had known more about and Especially the fact that, you know, Misha and Vera try for a child and um, it doesn't end up happening. He, you know, sort of mourns the fact that he would not, he is not a father and he's, he's lost his father. But his relationship with his mother, who is also a survivor of Chernobyl and ends up ultimately returning to the exclusion zone to live there and this is like a real thing in in Ukraine and in Pripyat is that there are um the older generation uh has returned um or there's there's a number of of people who have returned to live in their old homes where you know generations of their family had lived and though it's completely 
you know, poisoned with radiation. In my research that I found that was quite moving to me was that these Samosli, which are the the people that lived there, and mostly are women, older women, um, they have long survived many of the families that left and remained out of Chernobyl. So just the the trauma of being moved from their homes and the sort of unsettling that came in their lives afterwards um, from the Chernobyl accident caused so much more um, emotional strife and pain um, that they would die much younger. And so this generation that's returned to the land has actually lived there for decades now. And there's this, I think, return to home that, you know, both Katya and Misha can relate to and the loss of um, somebody that they love and dissolution of marriage in two different ways. One's like the loss of his wife and then um, to illness. And for Katya, it's the dissolution of our marriage to the loss of their son. They connect over the the fact of being and not being parents um, simultaneously. So when Misha invites Katya to be with his mother and meet his mother in the exclusion zone, I think that it shows not only his his admiration for his mother and his perception of the women in his life are just incredibly strong. And um, even though he has no father and much of his, his story has to do with, um, you know, the lack of male influence in his life, he, like his mother, is very stubborn and very grounded and um, I think takes a lot of influence from her. And he's also just a pleasant person. So he was, he was actually, when I worked in Misha's parts, he was, he was a, a fascinating character to work in because he was the most he he comes off as the character that notes everyone you know he's got friends in chernobyl he's got friends um in donetsk he's got um friends in kiev and um he's just the person that you know brings all these different people all these different walks of life together and i think that part of that is just his his appreciation for um, human life at a very young age. Those are the four main characters. And then how they interact and, you know, what happens is, is then, you know, we talked about them, maybe the heartbeat of the book. That's, you know, the movement of the book. And something that came up, it came up in one conversation, I think, between Slava and her lover, but was something that reverberated throughout the book was this idea of like, whose side are you on? And, yeah, you know, Misha had a friend from childhood named Peter who he was friends with and Peter fought for the Russians and Misha fought uh-huh. for the Ukraines and they just decided it would be that way. And Slava's lover, Dasha, was had a conversation with her and was talking about, you know, you have to try to understand the other side. And Slava was also friends with a journalist who wanted to show all sides. And she's like, well, th- their side isn't really real. And this idea of treason versus discourse and that discourse yeah. was probably not there. And I just wanted... The deeper that I got into this conflict and the context of the the Ukrainian protests and Russian occupation, um, 
the Soviet Union obviously had a very um, firm hand on press, media, discourse, that sort of thing, um, and is sort of notorious for you know propaganda um, and probably the best at propaganda in Europe. So I knew that this needed to be very involved in the in the story. So I mean, we're living in a time right now that you know discourse is a thing. Sometimes it's very one-sided. It's very often not actually discourse. It ends up being um, sort of like a mob mentality on, on either side. And I think especially in the past few years of our um, political history have been, you know, especially tense. And I also was, so I'm coming at this from an American perspective, and I'm also coming at this um, with the context of Ukrainian and Russian relations. And there's this perception that we have where we want to think that our perspective is right and there's no nuance to it. And I think that in this story, as well as a story that's taking place in many places around the world, but, you know, especially here, um, is most familiar to me. And, you know, in Ukraine, um, it, the story there is just that it, it's, it's, it's so much more nuanced. Um, there aren't just, you aren't just simply Ukrainian or you're Russian. Um, oftentimes, I mean, there's, there's families that, you know, will be split down the middle. I mean, in certain, in certain ways of politically, just like we are here. And many people in Ukraine, especially the older generations, like don't mind Russian influence and think that things were more stable and better, you know, during the Soviet times. And so it was a very complex political environment that I was walking into. And I wanted to be mindful of that. And um, not necessarily write something that's, you know, completely ignores the fact that there are also, you know, good Russian people out there. And um, that even though you might be fighting on one side, it doesn't mean that you are not a person that is, um, that is valued and cared about from somebody on the other side. And um, so it just seemed like a message that was very uh, relevant in our own country and remains an important topic, I think, in any democratic nation or um, country that's working on its democratic, you know, discourse. And I think that having those conversations through the characters is a way to sort of like humanize it, you know, and um, have the complexity of our perception brought to light and to think about the sides that we take and the way that we communicate our perspective and our ideals is, is really important. And I think that for Slava, especially um, Slava and Dasha, having the conflict between them in the beginning is a good way of showing that, you know, Slava is a fighter and she's knows herself and she knows her country and wants to fight for it no matter what. And when Dasha sort of enters the picture and begins to challenge her and, you know, like just the talking to her about how it can be detrimental to the cause by being blinded by a sort of like closed loop of information is not actually 
doing the important work of convincing others on your side. So I think that that was a radical idea to a, a radical activist. And it's Dasha that sort of like challenges that in her. It's something that was important to convey, I think, in the book, because it is not just like a, a simple black and white issue, as most things are. And tell me a little bit about $2 Radio editing it, because you had mentioned that that had changed some things for you, like Alexander being the one playing the piano. How did you end up finding $2 Radio? And um, what was that editing process like? I finished a draft of this, like I think my third draft of this book, um, uh, shortly after my MFA ended in like 2019. Um, And so I started sending it out at the start of the pandemic, actually, in uh, January 2020. That what proved to be um, ultimately, I don't think that a lot of um, agents and publishers were looking for work and many of them were and many of them just didn't think it was a good fit for them and and that sort of thing. And I actually had um, a close friend of mine um, and a mentor recommend $2 Radio to me and I was looking at their book lists and it's super awesome and I thought, well, I'm, I'm not sure if this is going to be a good, you know, good fit, um, it's kind of heady and, but I, I, I submitted it and was very pleased to get an email from them, um, on Christmas day. Um, so about a year after submitting it, I, I had sort of resolved myself that the, you know, the book might not be ready or it might not be, you know, I might not be, querying correctly, um, you know, to show how complex the story is. It's just so complex. It's so impossible to, you know, like summarize, I felt in a query letter, but um, Eric reached out to me on Christmas day, asking if the rights were still available. And then a couple weeks later, we talked on the phone um, where he shared his ideas on the major revisions. And I ended up leaving that conversation feeling excited again for the work and um, feeling good that somebody cared about it, especially, you know, getting a slew of rejections or just non-replies, you know, can be, can be challenging, um, especially for something that you've put blood, sweat and tears into. And, but he just really got it and Eliza got it. And um, those two worked with me. Eric and I worked on many of the the big things that we, you know, changed, like the Alexander story. We did a number of reworking on um, Slava. Um, She, her conversation and everything with Dasha did not exist. Um, That that, uh, confrontation that Dasha and um, Slava have, that whole scene did not exist. until $2 Radio stepped in and um, just sort of gave the book a little bit more continuity and flow and um, brought out, I think, the best parts of it. And um, later on, Eliza and I worked on copy edits and she was incredible going through fact-checking things. You know, we were working on that up until um, the end of last month. It's been like a real joy working with them and um, they understand the business and they also understand that um, I'm very new 
to being an author and being published and you know there's not very many of my short fiction stories out there um this is kind of my big thing um which I know is not usually the case for many fiction writers um I've been very fortunate that they've seen something in this work and um took a chance on it and that they care about it and love it and want it to do well it means so much can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer the passage that i'm going to read is from it's an excerpt from the cathedral of mist which is a um, book of short stories um it's printed by wakefield press and um this particular story is written by uh, or this particular collection is um written by paul willems um, who was a Belgian um, playwright. And um, so what I'm going to read here is uh, Requiem for Bread, which is um, translated by Edward Govan. Bread should never be sliced, my grandmother says. It must be broken. And she takes the knife from my hands. I say nothing, silent in the presence of sacred words. I ask my cousin to explain. She is 12 years old. I trust her because of her eyes, great big eyes with bluish whites and moist glistening irises each night paints anew with India ink. She considers. I feel like she is about to unveil one of the secrets of the world to me, one of those secrets guarded by dragons. She says, when a knife touches bread, the bread screams. A short while later, my cousin and I play at leaning out the fourth floor window. She slips and lets out a scream, a feeble scream. But right away, I know it as the scream of death. She crashes into the sidewalk. Tell me more about why you chose that. Well, um, <coughs> sorry. Um, this is uh, this is actually, um, I love the minimal um, descriptors in this piece. Um, I love that it's, um, this is just the first um, sort of scene. And this story is actually told in a series of vignettes. Um, but I love how spare it is. Um, that's oftentimes in my own writing, um, I'm asked for more details. So um, when I see, when I read a piece like this, though, um, I'm moved by how powerful it is and how little is delivered. Um, and yeah that i i think that it's just in it, it runs in a full circle it's a it's a tight um scene and um it just it it just got me in the sense of how precise you can be with language um and intentional and how much emotional movement can take place in a small amount of space can you read something that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft that you wrote? Yes. So I am actually going to read just the end of a section here um, from the book in the beginning. Um, it's a, just shortly after the prologue, and it's a section called The Captain. The street piano was where it always had been, 
There on Khrushchev, where he would play day after day, abandoned by some unknown donor, the light oak top, bored, bent from weather, the epoxy chipped and worn. He wipes the seed of snow, lifts the cover to expose the white teeth. He warms his hands with his breath, his gloves black with the fingers cut. He twists a ring on his finger, his father's silver ring. A crowd gathers as he begins to play. Tell me why you chose that. Um, I chose that portion um, because um, Alexander wasn't initially supposed to be um, the <laughs> the piano player at Maidan. Uh, he was, you know, he was actually just shows up at the uh, monastery in the original version. And this last um, revision, you know, this past year, major part of that has been finding opportunities to um, uh, make this seamless um, <laughs> change of Alexander actually being this pianist at my dawn. And so I, I read that because it was um, a very exciting moment. It was the first thing that I wrote after um, having a conversation with Eric about um, having Alexander be that person. And um, so I'm both very proud of it. And it did not exist before the galley. Where do you write? I mostly write in bed with my headphones on. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I usually go to the movies. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I go to my friend and mentor Jenny Irish. She's my number one. How have you dealt with rejection? I've put it on a wall. I print out the um, rejection slips, um, put them on a wall in my office, and I look at them until they become wallpaper, and I just keep going. And what is your favorite word? Right now, my favorite word is Arcadia. Well, thank you so much for sharing and for your time. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And I'm very excited to have talked to you. If you like today's show with Kalani Pickhart, author of I Will Die in a Foreign Land, check out my interview with Julia Phillips on her novel Disappearing Earth, which takes place in Kamchatka, Russia. We discussed how human connection can heal us, Russian politics, missing girls, and structuring a novel by months of the year. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 320 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Susan Orlean, Charlotte Wood, Peter Ho-Davies, and Jean Hanf Korolitz. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. 
please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.